The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good morning, everybody. Nice to feel the bubbling of spring energy. (laughs) Hopefully that's what it is. (laughs) And we've been looking these last few weeks at, uh, we've been picking this winter and spring to look at the Buddha's teachings on spiritual path. And we're right in this place of the path where we're bringing this kind and discerning awareness, present moment awareness, to the activity of speech. And it's such a potent place where we can very effectively plant seeds of suffering for ourselves and others and also um, plant seeds of reconciliation and healing and joy. And we can set emotion a lot of happiness also with words. And this is always the uh, issue for us human beings is um, we kind of like pretending that it doesn't matter. I started talking about PATH back in January as this initial insight that humans have in our lives. It matters. It matters who I am or how I am, I should say, and how I'm acting and how I'm thinking and how I'm speaking. And whether I, you know, even if I don't like that it matters, it still matters how we're showing up. And so pretending that it doesn't matter is one of the ways that it matters. Because that's a very common strategy. All of the mess, that's somebody else's fault. You know, it's not my fault. So it doesn't really matter the choices that I make or the ways that I think and speak because other people screwed it up, the world, not me. And that's a common attitude because... It's quite impactful, just the complexity of realizing that it matters, that so much of the injustice in the world and so much of the injustice in our own mind and heart and our families, all of the ways that we harm each other, all of it matters. And it doesn't matter theoretically, it matters in terms of how I am in this moment, what sort of tendencies I'm reinforcing, what sort of tendencies I'm teasing out, uprooting in my heart. And uh, part of this complexity is that we need a skill set that goes to the whole range so we know how to practice well. We know how to be a good human being when the mind, when the heart is really clear and stable and in a good place. But we also need to know how to show up to be a good human being when our mind, the conditioned patterns in our mind, is quite unskillful. It's a beast. Because sometimes we are that beast. You know, we're acting out the reptilian, you know, the fight or flight or wanting revenge or wanting to take, even though it's not ours, we want it, I'm going to get it. We're more primitive. Uh, emotional, mental conditioning. And if you haven't noticed, I think it's true to say that all of us in the room, we're capable of living out of any place along that spectrum. 
being in moments, hopefully a really wise, kind human being. Maybe even that wisdom in moments is effortless. Like I'm not even trying to be a wise and kind human being. That's just the natural expression of my life in these moments when I'm over here at this end of the spectrum. And sometimes we're sort of in the middle where we're, we realize it's possible to be skillful. We may not we're sort of be completely there, but we're inspired about being a good human being. But it's still work. It's not effortless. And here where we're, you know, we're directly managing as skillfully as we can the unwholesome tendencies in our heart that have been triggered by life. You know, the rage that's been triggered. Okay, what do I do with this? The greed, the lust that gets triggered. Okay, what am I going to do about that? How can I, you know, this is already moving in me, the lust, the greed, the hate, the whatever, even self-hatred, right? Shame. It's already been triggered. I'm already feeling it. It's already got some momentum. Now what, how do I dance with this? How do I move with this? How do I understand this in a way that minimizes harm for myself and others. I can't wish it away. We can't wish our unhel- uh, unhelpful, unskillful programming away. right? It's like it would be nice to be able to, each time we meet somebody, hand them, you know, for some of us it would be 200 pages, others maybe one page, all the triggers, like don't do these things or this is what you're going to see, Right? But that doesn't happen. So we're constantly, you know, like it or not, these not very skillful patterns get triggered in us. And from our practice point of view, it's not about taking it personally because we realize that those unhelpful emotional, psychological patterns, they're not personal, but they're definitely, we would say, my responsibility. Because just because I'm not the one who's angry. There is anger. And part of anger, it's like a, someone used the image of a wildfire, you know, burning. Its nature is to burn everything down. You know, when we're really hurting, when we're really angry and hurting, it doesn't really matter. We'll say anything as a way of masking the pain or alleviating the pain. It doesn't. It just tends to burn other stuff down. You know, and it doesn't matter if we regret it Ten minutes or two days later, the damage has been done. We've said that. We did that. And then it tends to, you know, then that person wants to say something, right? And on and on it goes. And, you know, we see this in the wider world as these conflicts that keep feeding each other. You know, the two sides and what they do and what they say feed the hatred and the burning. So as a human being, we need this, I I like to think of it, and we use it in the Buddhist tradition, this parental energy. Like when we have a a toddler, you know, that wants to stick things in outlets or, you know, do something to the dog or, you know, they don't know better. And they got angry and they hate mommy and they want to do something damaging. And and the parent, a wise parent, is going to really hover and be vigilant and redirect and basically do whatever they have to do, including in times grabbing the kid, you know, and holding on to them, or grabbing the kid and putting them in their room and 
leaning against the door. When you relax, you can come out. When you're, you know, no longer that rageful three-year-old, you know, you're welcome back into the community of the family. But until then, sure, destroy your toys. <laughs> Go at it. Because we already know that the, we've already sort of sealed the room off. It's, there's limited damage they can do or whatever. But the point is we have to have that same skill set with our mind. Like when we're that irrational child and raw emotions have been triggered and we don't know what's for our own well-being or the well-being of others, as the Buddha says, then we do whatever needs to be done to protect yourself and to protect others. Right? Why wouldn't a compassionate mind, heart, do that for oneself? Of course it would. And so that's this whole area of morality or spiritual practice we call wholesome restraint, where we're really naturally, appropriately concerned and feel regret for the damage, the harm that we create for ourselves and others. right? And that motivates this parental vigilance where we're willing to do whatever we have to do to protect ourselves and others. And then there's this sort of more, you know, place where the, you know, the parent has a child that um, they're old enough that they can't be told what to do, right? So maybe a teenager. I didn't. I haven't raised kids, so some of you know better than me. But you, but here you can't tell kids what to do, but you can walk your talk, right? And you can model the kind of. And not just model it like, oh, God, I have to be good because my kid's watching, but model why being a good human being, being kind, being speaking the truth, not using, you know, not gossiping, not putting people down, why that way of being is enlivening and liberating instead of being a goody-two-shoots, you know, where at least I can feel morally superior to everybody else. You know, we don't want to model that because a wise teenager is going to see what a trap that is, you know, how that idea of being better than others is oppressive, and I want nothing of that. But to actually model the joy that comes in being a skillful, wise human being that's full of care about not wanting to cause oneself and others harm, like how that actually feels good and is enlivening, that's how we parent our mind, right? So we want to have that skill set too, where it's not the mind doesn't need that overt control. What the mind needs now is to be inspired about how to be good, like how we need reflections on being good that make sense and are inspiring to us. Oh, yeah, that does sound good. You know, so that mind, like if we're going into an interaction, a difficult meeting at work or meeting a new person that we might date or something like that, that mind might just remind us of like a wise parent in that moment might say, hey, do you remember when something like this happened before and you did this and how well that worked out? Right. So might be encouraging like you know how to do this. You've been you've made enough mistakes and had enough success in these kind of interactions, you know what works. Remember that. 
or we might just share from our own experience. Yeah, this was like what happened to me three weeks ago, and this is what I did, and it felt really good. It worked out really well. So this is more the positive end, right? The Buddha says, refrain from doing stupid stuff, right? <laughs> Quoting a former president. <laughs> People, he got so much grief for that. But that's like such an important thing, right? That basic capacity to not do stupid stuff, to refrain, to, like to do whatever we can to stop doing stupid stuff. Because when we do stupid stuff, it takes so much work to deal with the aftermath that we're total, our life gets totally absorbed in cleaning up the messes. We'd have so much more space to understand these more refined skill sets if we just stop doing stupid stuff. And so this is then inspiring some of that more refined stuff, like, hey, there's more to life than this stopping doing stupid stuff. You can start living in a way that feels really good. You can be cultivating a generous heart, a kind heart, a wise heart. It's not about being the doormat of the world where everyone takes advantage of us, but really being skillful about what is in the direction of our own well-being and the well-being of others. And to be creative about that, not to dismiss that possibility of being a force for good in our own lives and in the wider communities that we're part of. But it takes some balance and creativity and you know, part of wisdom is this real subtle depth, but part of wisdom and awareness is this breadth of presence where we really see, we, we kind of read how we might show up in this moment, in this particular community interaction, that like, we're not afraid to be in it for the long, long haul, like how to plant one seed, do one thing, speak one thing, that sets something good in motion. We're in it for the long haul, and it feels good. It's like, I might not see even the fruit of this action, this what I said or what I didn't say, but I still it still feels good to have planted something that's going to bear positive fruit. Right? We don't have to like greedily be the one who gets the reward. It feels good to set good stuff in motion. All you have to do is check it out. Is that true for you? So refrain from doing the stupid stuff. Learn the joy. Learn to experience the happiness of doing good stuff. It actually feels good. And this replaces I'm doing good stuff because I want people to think I'm good or I want to think I'm good. But it actually, the reward is in the doing of good stuff. We actually feel good. So notice like when you take three minutes to hang out with your dog or whatever it might be, your partner, your friend, it doesn't really matter, but you're, have, you're like showing up in a generous way as a whole person, like you're really there in the interaction for whatever the length of time that actually makes sense for you. But you're being generous. And then notice, like, did that feel good? What's the aftermath of having shown up completely, fully, in a kind and generous way? Oh, that felt good. Well, maybe I'll try that again. And that builds on itself. Like if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it in a generous, full, 
and kind way. Not because it's right, because the reward is right there. And it's that kind of reward that just keeps on giving. Because even remembering at the end of the day that we lived in this way, we spoke in that way, we showed up in this way, we sleep well because the aftertaste of that kind of day feels good. And then, you know, why speech and just generally this whole area of practice of how we relate to others. At some point, the parent, like maybe when you're older and your kid's grown up and you did the hard work of managing them when that's what needed to happen and you did the hard work of inspiring and walking your talk when that was the way to relate. And now they're older and they have their own internalized wisdom. And so now the way we parent is we love them, we trust them to make their own mistakes, and we keep noticing, we keep in mind the momentum of goodness in their heart. So they may even have some unwholesome emotional pattern that's gotten triggered, you know, and you're on the phone with them or you're talking to them. But you, and you're not in denial. You see that they're angry or you see that they're caught in the way that they're caught, but that's not all that you see. So you're, you know, your child is there, they're 37 or whatever, and you see their cumulative wisdom. Like you're sensing their cumulative wisdom, you're sensing their capacity to move forward skillfully with this particular situation. You're keeping that in mind. And that's exactly what we need for ourselves is this like, I don't need to manage myself. I don't even need to inspire myself. I just need to be aware of what this mind and body is right now. Like to see the depth, the cumulative depth of wisdom. How many times have we been burnt by doing stupid stuff? That exists in my heart and all of our hearts as wisdom. I mean, that is really earthy wisdom. Like, oh yeah, been there, done that. But we need to be mindfully aware. We need to be have this extraordinary sensitivity. I think of it as these really taut strings. Like, I don't know if you've ever looked at a fiddle or a violin and the higher pitch strings. Like, they're really taut. And the thing about taut strings like that is they sympathetically vibrate. You don't even need to pluck them. If something, some sound is close by, the string, right, just through the sound waves will start to vibrate. And it's like these are all of those previous experiences that have been laid down, in a sense, on our heart. Everything that's happened to us, possibly from previous lifetimes, possibly we're tuned in to everything that's ever happened to anybody. Who knows? I don't. I don't know. But I know that when my mind is in balance, when there's a lot of mindful awareness, then th- then when I'm showing up in that way, I feel a lot just from sensitivity. And not trying to like figure it out by thinking through like what is my you know emoting heart or what is my sensitive body or what is all of this trying to tell me. No, we just feel. Because what I'm going to say or not say, what I'm going to do or not do, it's going to be born out of that sensitivity. So everything starts to vibrate when we're seeing and hearing whatever's going on in the moment. 
all that we've learned, all the mistakes and successes that have been sensed in the past will inform this moment if we let it. But we have to not be in the moment trying to figure out how to be skillful in a cognitive or intellectual sense, like, what should I do? But just really seeing and feeling and being in the enormity of sensitivity and being really curious about, like, what I might say or do. You know, because even as an impulse is emerging, even before we say anything or do anything, even as it forms in this, what we call the body and the mind, there's the sensitivity reveals like this impulse isn't to be trusted. I don't trust this impulse. Not even with those words. It's just this intuition. Or, oh, this feels right. This feels good. You know, and all through human history, people have talked about this as the voice of intuition or that little quiet voice or, you know, people have ways to refer to this wisdom. In Buddhism, we call this, this is kind of earthy wisdom. The Buddha calls this wisdom the guardian of the world. Like without this, we're basically screwed. We are. But, and that's why when we're acting without any presence, we're just acting according to whatever habit energy is strongest in every moment. And of course, a lot of the habit energies that get triggered are not very wise. But when we're here, we're not just feeling the loudest habit energy that's gotten triggered. We're feeling all the more subtle, less loud tendencies. And because there's this powerful, like um, wholesome desire to not harm, to act in ways that are healing, and to be free, right? Those are the different levels, like don't do stupid stuff, is a way to be skillful in a way that sets emotion something that feels good. And I don't even want to, I don't want to be weighed down by even having to be good. I really aspire to a more profound kind of freedom. So all those things are there in these moments when we're present. And this is what, you know, what we call in the Buddhist tradition about, you know, wisdom around suffering and the end of suffering. This is actually what the heart or the mind cares about. The causes for suffering and the causes for release. Everything else is kind of window dressing. And and this is what we train ourselves. It may sound a little self-important or overly serious, but you'll see you can still function as a human being with this orientation like of the wholesome desire to be sensitive because I care about suffering and the end of suffering. And you don't have to tell your friends that that's what you're doing. And you don't have to have a dour face because you care about suffering and the end of suffering, right? It's like, that's happy. That's happy stuff. It's not like, like oh, I don't have to suffer and there's this possibility for real freedom. And all I have to do is learn, trust, this sensitivity. Being sensitive in the way that the heart can be sensitive. But it really takes, uh, you know, it takes time. But this abandoning of distractedness and superficiality about what's actually important. 
And just start training with simple moments when you're hanging out with your dog or with your kid or at work in a less stressful situation. And you just practice like in these ordinary moments, um, investing in that raw sensitivity because you care about suffering and the end of suffering. When you're walking to your car or to your bicycle, when you're having lunch in a little bit, like, okay, let me just see. Instead of like thinking I'm having lunch in order to have a nice sense experience, no, I'm going to be radically sensitive and I'm going to invest in the sensitivity because I care about the roots of suffering and the possibility of release, the heart completely, fully unburdened. Even if that seems like a little bit out there, why not just stay open to it, that possibility? Because otherwise we tend to sell ourselves short about what life is. And when we do that, then what makes sense is just to go after the next pleasant sense experience. Well, I might as well go, you know, put all my, you know, all the emphasis on having a delicious lunch because I don't know what else to do with life. And then after lunch is done, then like some delicious entertainment. And then, you know, eventually it will be time for sleep. And then... Oh, yeah, i got to go to work, but I'm going to spend my money in this. So otherwise, our life is we're trying to connect the dots of one pleasant sense experience, another, and if they all line up well enough, we feel motivated to continue living because, well, I'm going to get this. And, well, of course, all of that is tenuous. We're not really in charge of all what we imagine we're setting in motion. And when we really look at these pleasant sense experiences, they are what they are, pleasant, but they don't last very long and they don't really change things much. You know, some of us have had nice vacations or, you know, a nice meal or a nice interaction with another human being or some success at work or, you know, these things that come our way. And it doesn't really change things in the big picture. We're still an anxious, uneasy human being trying to connect the dots of sense pleasures, you know, as if it got, has gotten us anywhere. And so then we start getting interested in, okay, I get what the, I th- I'm getting what the Buddha is pointing to that I have to cultivate this profound sensitivity, which is very, in a way, it's very hard to be a sensitive human being. That's why so much of what all of us do is avoid being sensitive, you know. Think about what we do a lot of the time. And so much of that stuff we do is a desensitization. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's like gross, intense stuff. You know, we want spicy food. Now, I like spicy food too, but, but it's interesting how averse I get then to bland food. Oatmeal with nothing in it, not even salt. Try it sometime. It's like... Neutral stuff is scary. <laughs> Being at home with nothing to do is scary. Yeah, it's like we're afraid of reality. So we spice it up with drama. You know, that's why there's an industry for horror films. In this drama and that drama. And even when a lot of our actions to try to make the world a better place, when we really dig down we see that a lot of that is because we're addicted to drama of being good and bad more than actually caring about the healing and you know a movement towards justice in the world 
So we have to be really honest. So with the sensitivity, we're really getting at the heart of the problem. How we're setting emotion, suffering for ourselves and others through greed, anger, and delusion, as the Buddha would say, and how there's another possibility. And how we're going to develop these three skill sets of learning how to refrain from the habit energies we don't trust because we think they're coming out of greed and hatred and delusion, distraction. And how we can be inspired to move in the direction, acting in wholesome ways that actually leave a good taste in the heart. And how we can aspire to something even more profound, a freedom from even having to be good. Now, we always want to go right from being bad to being this total freedom. It's like, oh, okay, so I don't even have to worry about being bad. But this freedom really comes from getting very skilled at being skillful. We get so skilled at being skillful, we take our hands off the wheel and we realize, I don't even have to desire being skillful. It's so The feedback mechanisms are so well-developed that the heart, the mind, is going to continue interacting in really skillful ways without me constructing the thought of me needing to be skillful. So that's a natural development when we've learned to really appreciate the value in being skillful because it feels good in the heart. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes before the kids come. It'd be nice to hear from a few folks your own reflections or questions that come to mind. Yeah, Dan, you want to start us off? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, I'm reading a book called Do Dogs Dream? And it's about the, the guy's been, he's an expert in dogs. And it's about what we know about dogs or think we know and what we know to date and what's been proven, what, you know, what's really understood. And he gets into how hard it is to get the professionals, the vets, to change the way they think. And he gets into the notion that do animals or dogs, do they feel pain? And it's it's unequivocal. It's been proven in labs and that they feel pain on a very on a more human-like level. And be, despite that, they still do surveys and like 50, 60% of the vets out there think they don't feel pain. And I think what, what I, th- I think about that is why is it so hard for th- they must be aware on some level of this information. So why is it so hard for them to change? You know what what's going on? I'm not, and that's not the nature of my question. The question is, or the thing is, is that I often wonder if at the very base of this is just simply openness. You know, my experience with with meditation and Buddhism is the more I'm open the more I'm willing to feel the compassion, the more, I don't know, it's kind of tra- it's kind of magic, but the more my mind opens up as to what is reality. And so when I read that stuff, because it's really befuddling, I just can't help but think it's the same blocks that we all have. Yeah. So I don't but know if that, you have any... <laughs> yeah, it might be more about a fixed view. Like I would also suggest that people who think that we and dogs feel pain as if we know what that means, that we need a lot of humility around that too. So it may be more about not having a fixed view than which fixed view is correct around what pain is for dogs or humans or any living being. Because 
that is a skillful, like that humility is skillful because it keeps the mind interested, keeps the mind learning. When we think, when we have a fixed idea that we experience pain and dogs experience pain like we do, that presumes we know more than we know. Like even what we, we, like that we understand what our experience of pain actually is. And very few humans have cultivated a stability of present moment awareness and brought some real curiosity to the experience of pain to understand what it is, to kind of go beyond our own fixed ideas. Because I don't know about you, but I have a very strongly entrenched fixed idea that pain is bad. Anybody not have that? <laughs> but I've never done a... I mean, now I have, of course, but you know, for a long time I didn't do a careful my own direct immediate research about whether pain is bad or not. Now I don't think pain is bad. Pain is just what it is. There are times when there is an intensity of sensation, right? That's all I can say about it. I can't say it's bad. When I frame it with my thinking mind a certain way, then it appears to be bad. There appears to be somebody who doesn't want this to be happening. But that's a construction and the mind can construct another construction. It doesn't have to construct that construction in which pain is bad. And that's the nimbleness and the humility we really need to do our work as a human being. Because what we tend to want to do is see how other people's fixed views are wrong without really examining our own fixedness and these kind of situations, like around pain is one of the best examples. And look who's here. So we need to leave it here. Great, let's let the children in. We'll sing a song before we end together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.